Jesus, we thank you this morning. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your kindness to us. Your faithfulness. Just turn your attention to him this morning. Jesus, you're worthy. You're so good. And we welcome you here. Just give him thanks for his kindness to you this morning. Jesus, we thank you. You're so good to us. You're so good. There's no one like you. You're so good. You're so kind. We thank you this morning for what you're doing. We thank you that we get to be alive during this time to see what you're doing here on earth. We just pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done here on Salt Spring as it is in heaven. This would be a place people would come and they would encounter you. They would meet with you. Jesus, we thank you this morning that even as we worship, that strongholds are breaking. As we declare your greatness, that the enemy is losing ground. that the gates of hell are falling before your church. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Sometimes it seems like going after the presence of Jesus. It seems mysterious. It seems unknown, maybe. Even in a moment where where we come together like this and, and we pray together, it's like, well, is Jesus even hearing our prayers if we don't have the right... I don't know if we're not saying the right words or... Have you guys ever thought that? Like, okay, is this, is this even going anywhere? Am I saying the right words? Is, it, is there something more to this? Do I have to, you know, go through a certain routine or a certain act? 
But you know, this morning as we just invite him and welcome him here, because Jesus is here. Church, Jesus is here this morning. It says where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. And so as we welcome him, there's not a, a certain way we have to do it. There's not a certain word we have to say. It's just a matter of saying, Jesus, we welcome you here. Come and speak to us this morning. As we study your word, as we read this, his word, which is Jesus in print, You realize that we're not just reading a, a holy book. But when, when we crack this open and we start reading it, when we invite the Holy Spirit to interpret Scripture to us, it is meant for the purpose of revealing Jesus to us. Is there anybody who wants to know Jesus better? As you read this, and you invite the Holy Spirit to read it with you, Jesus is revealed. This isn't a, a manual to doing life better or to being kinder. This is a manual to knowing Jesus. This is the word that was made flesh in print. And so often we can feel like, well, what is the will of God for me? What, like, why does it feel so mysterious when we talk about the presence of God? What is God doing? What is his will? What is his desire? Anybody feel like that? Like, there's, just, there's some mystery, some, something that's, that's covering us from from a deeper encounter. A few, maybe? How do we live in God's presence? How do we remain when I'm being attacked by those around me? How do I stay in his presence when life feels like chaos and when everything feels like it's falling apart? How do I remain with him when, when somebody close to me is suffering and I don't know how to comfort them? How do I remain? How do I stay? How do I dwell in his presence in those moments? Is it even possible? Or is it that we're supposed to just go and be in his presence and then we go and we deal with those things and then we go back into his presence? I don't think so. I believe that we are called to live in his presence. That there's not supposed to be a time where we are out of his presence. Not a second, not a moment. That that's what Jesus died for so that we could be in his presence. Face to face with him. So how am I supposed to live in his presence when it feels like there are so many things constantly pulling me away?
Diane was just saying that Jesus showed her this week the verse where it says, lean not on your own understanding. And how that was what it looked like for her to trust God. And, and that, that brings the question is, how, how do I walk in his presence when I'm not even sure I can trust him? I think these are, these are questions that, that many of us in here have been wrestling with. You know, we've, talk, we've been talking about living and dwelling in the presence of God. We've talked about why. We've talked about why it's important, what it looks like. But how do we actually apply it when the rubber meets the road? I want to start with this. This declaration. And the declaration is that God is good. You've maybe heard that in the, in the context of, there, there used to be, it depends what circles you've grown up in, but there used to be a, an old saying where you'd say, God is good, and then the congregation would respond all the time. And then the, the pastor or leader would say, I've forgotten it now. All the time, and then the congregation respond, God is good. But I think that's actually desensitized us to what it means, this statement that God is good. Because if we're really honest, I don't know that we actually believe it. And I say that because we don't live like God is good. We don't believe like God is good. But in 1 John it says, God is pure light. You will never find even a trace of darkness in him. His motivations, his actions, his attitudes, his character, his thoughts... All are good. This needs to become something that is foundational to our knowing God. Because how can we know somebody? How can we even want to know somebody when we, when we can't trust their motives? When we don't know that they are good. Now, the, the traditional sense of, of this statement, God is good, has been understood to, to be, God is good, therefore, if he does something that looks bad to me, it must be good. We, we, we try and, and twist it so that, okay, well, that does, how does that make sense with our experience? So if somebody is suffering or if there's sickness, or, well, there must, the, the response is, well, there must be a reason. God is, good. God is good, and so this must be good for them, so we should praise God because you're sick. No. Absolutely not. That's a, that's a complete misunderstanding. Because this is, this is the truth. His character and his nature are perfectly displayed in Jesus. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. 2 Corinthians 4.4 speaks of Christ this way. It says, Christ who is the exact likeness of God. So if you ever want to know God's attitude, his motive, what he would do in a situation, you look at Jesus. When it comes to sickness... We often have questions, well, what is God's motive in this situation? Is it, is it that he wants me to learn a lesson from sickness? If you look at Jesus, there's not one time in Scripture where Jesus didn't heal somebody. There's not one time. Every person who came to him, he healed. And not only that, 
I think it's at the end of the book of John. John says, if we were to write down every act that Jesus did, we'd run out of paper and ink. So the recordings that we have don't even cover the entirety of what Jesus did. Yeah, every time somebody that was sick came to him. There's times where he'd go to a village and it said he healed every sick person in that village. The nature and character of God are displayed perfectly in Jesus. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it actually says that Satan is the one who is trying to keep people or who is blinding people from seeing that Jesus is the likeness of God. It tries to make him look mysterious or unknown or unreachable, unavailable. See, when, when the enemy can get us to give credit to God for something that he's doing, he can keep us from our freedom. When we give God credit for what the enemy is doing, right, for death, destruction, pain, suffering, when we try and credit that to God, it, it affects the way that we're able to approach him. Because now we think, oh, maybe he's not actually good. Which, guess what, comes back to the very first question in Genesis. Did God really say that? Since the beginning of time, the enemy has been trying to undermine the belief that God is good. The second way that this, this truth of God is good is applied is with a, a self-absorbed approach. Where, well, God wants me to be happy, right? God wants, he would never want anything to, to happen in my life that would be problematic or that would cause me stress. So if it doesn't feel good to me, if it's not comfortable, then it must not be God. That actually I am the main character in my story. But here's the problem. When people hear us preach about Jesus without seeing us live like Jesus, we turn the gospel into a philosophy instead of inviting people into a relationship with the word of God. We would, we would maybe say, he would never want me to be vulnerable or uncomfortable or feeling underqualified, right? But in Luke chapter 10, this is what it says, in verse 2 and 3, it says, now off you go. This is when Jesus is sending out the 72. It says, I am sending you out even though you feel as vulnerable as lambs going into a pack of wolves. Is there anybody in here who, who you feel vulnerable, you feel underqualified for what God has called you to? Guess what? You're exactly where you're supposed to be. We need to recognize that, that God is actually calling us And sending us out when we feel vulnerable, when we feel underqualified. Why? It says here, it says you won't need to take anything with you. Trust in God alone. 
And don't get distracted from my purpose by anyone you meet along the way. Jesus sent them out when they were vulnerable so that they would learn to rely on his presence with them. Because it's not about your comfort, it's about his glory. Your lives are not about you, they're about bringing glory to Jesus. The amazing thing is that he actually invites us, he says that he's going to share his glory with us. Which is incredible, because we don't deserve that, nor... But, but that's what he says. See, this, this understanding that, that God would just keep us comfortable is problematic, because it's his voice that leads us away from temptation. Temptation is what's comfortable... So his voice is leading us away from comfort. It's his voice that says to you, go and apologize. We're like, no, I don't want to apologize. I'm comfortable here in my unapologetic state. Right? You ever been in a, in, a, in a something, you did something wrong, and you're like, I need to go apologize to that person. And everything inside of you is like, I don't want to apologize to that person. Either because they did something or just because I don't want to. It's not comfortable. But it's his voice that leads us to that place. It's his voice that leads us into humility. Jesus is constantly in our lives. When we're connected with his presence, he is constantly leading us outside of comfort, outside of what we're used to, outside of where we feel like we're safe. I think actually that's well, that's one of the reasons that God is often described as a father and not as a mother. Because mothers do an amazing job at creating a safe place for their kids. But dads are like, go jump off that, see what happens. Let's build a swing, like way up there, and you can swing on it, and let's see. Let's see if you can make it. Right? All the moms are like, no, don't do that. They're going to kill themselves. Or is this just my family? Nobody else goes through this? <laughs> like, hey, let's hang the hammock like 10 feet in the air. Right? And my son's like, yeah, that's great. Then we'll jump off the deck onto the hammock. And Lael's like, uh, maybe let's not. See, we need both. We need that safety and we need that push. But when we understand that God wants us to be safe without pushing us outside of our comfort zone, without finding our safety in Him, without making our safe place His presence as opposed to a location or a state of, of mind or a, a feeling of comfort, the safe place is actually being in His presence. That's where we're safe. Okay, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 3. So what do we do about that? If, if we understand that God is good, and we don't want to partner with the traditional approach, which attributes aspects of, of the enemy to God, and we don't want to partner with the self-involved approach, which says that it's all about me, my life is all about me. 
What is the solution? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 16. It says this, it says, But the moment one turns to the Lord with an open heart, the veil is lifted and they see. Now the Lord I'm referring to is the Holy Spirit. And wherever he is Lord, there is freedom. We can all draw close to him with the veil removed from our faces. And with no veil, we all become like mirrors who brightly reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus. We are being transfigured into his very image as we move from one bright, brighter level of glory to another. And this glorious transfiguration comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The mystery, it actually says the veil, the thing that keeps us from seeing, is lifted when we come to Jesus with an open heart. When we allow the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus, to be working and moving in our lives. And then it says this, it says, as we draw close to him, without a veil, we reflect him. When we behold him, we become like him. The transformation happens when we fix our eyes on Jesus. Us displaying his glory happens when we fix our eyes on Jesus in the midst of the problem, in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the, the persecution or the, the mocking. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that is transforming us as we gaze on the beauty of Jesus. But here's the thing, where does he transform us? Where is his presence? His presence is with us all the time. So guess what? He's transforming you just as much when everything feels like it's going well as when it feels like everything's falling apart. It's in the refining that he's transforming us. We can so often feel like, I don't want to go through this process. I, everything feels too stressful. Everything is overwhelming. There's so much work to be done and I feel like I'm the only one doing it. There's, you know, this person I, and, and me don't get along. My neighbor is annoying. All of this stuff and it should just be peaceful and quiet and tranquil. That should be our lives. But what we miss is that it's in the refining of those moments that his glory is revealed. The glory in the gold is, is revealed in the refining. It's in the refining where the impurities are taken out of the gold. It's through the refining that gold is actually at its most valuable and softest state. And maybe this week or maybe this month or maybe this year has just been chaos for you. It's not what you wanted it to be. It's not what you thought it would look like. It, things have not gone the way you expected them to go. Maybe there's people who are coming after you or who are speaking against you. Maybe there's 
there are situations where you feel unqualified or you feel overwhelmed in. But those are exactly the moments where he's refining joy, he's refining patience. All the things that you prayed about last year that you asked him to take away, guess what he's doing in those moments? All the impurities. When you said, Jesus, I just want more joy. I just want more peace. Fill me with patience. Guess what he's doing in those moments? He's answering those prayers. Isn't that good? Come on, that's good news. Somebody's like, oh, I wish I hadn't prayed that prayer. Our lives are meant to be saturated in his glory. So that when the world sees us, just like we read in Corinthians, it's a reflection of his glory. We're to reflect his glory to the world. But how do we do that? Second Corinthians twelve, seven to ten. You maybe know this passage because it's been quoted for many different things. Verse 7, it says, The extraordinary level of the revelation I've received is no reason for anyone to exalt me. For this is why a thorn in my flesh was given to me, the adversary's messenger sent to harass me, keeping me from becoming arrogant. Okay, I'm going to pause there for a second. This verse has been used as an example of how God uses sickness. That's a lie, for one. There's nothing in here that talks about sickness. It talks about a thorn in the flesh, which according to, I'll give you the references quickly. Numbers 33, 55, and Judges 2, 3. God uses this phrase to speak about a people that if the, if the Israelites wouldn't drive out would become a thorn in their side or a thorn in their flesh. So this actually is a... a uh, Hebrew metaphor to speak of an annoying people. So you have somebody annoying you? Guess what? This verse is for you. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to relieve me of this, but he answered me, my grace is always more than enough for you. And my power finds its full expression through your weakness. So I will celebrate my weakness for when I am weak, I sense more deeply the mighty power of Christ living in me. So I'm not defeated by my weakness, but delighted. For when I feel my weakness and endure mistreatment, when I'm surrounded with troubles on every side and face persecution because of my love for Christ, I am made yet stronger for my weakness becomes a portal to God's power. Church, guess what? When you feel weak, you have an opportunity to display the glory of God to the world. 
Weakness isn't... We, Paul is not talking about weakness in this context as an excuse for sin or as a, a statement of, I'm just a poor, wretched person that, that somehow Jesus saved. But he's talking about it in the context of, I can glory in this because God takes my weakness and makes something glorious and beautiful out of it. He takes my pain right now in this season and he makes something glorious and beautiful out of it. But my weakness is wasted if I don't partner it with his strength. What if we started looking at every moment of weakness, every pain, every trial, as an opportunity to display the glory of God to the world? What if every time Satan came and tried to disrupt us, bring us into chaos, make us anxious, make us fearful, overwhelm us? What if we took those and we said, I am going to turn this, I'm going to use this as a point of displaying the glory of God to the world? Every time the enemy tried to distract you from God, it became a moment where you displayed his glory to the world. Wouldn't that be incredible? So how do we do that? When I feel over my head in my marriage, when I feel over my head parenting my kids, with work, I lean in. When people have high expectations of me, I lean in. When I feel unqualified or overwhelmed, I lean in. I lean in to his presence. I lean in to his glory. When I feel exhausted, I lean in. So how do we lean in? Let me go through this quick. We lean into what he has done. Right? We do that maybe by maybe you've started a journal, maybe you never have, but part of the purpose of journaling is that you can later go back and look at what Jesus has done in your life. So that when you're facing something in front of you, you go back to what he has done in the past. So we lean into what he's done. We lean into what he said. Right? We go back to his word and we read it because this is what he has said that he will do. Guess what? He doesn't ever say he will do something and then not do it. So we lean into what he said. We lean into what he has done. We lean into what he is doing. Surround yourself with testimonies of what God is doing. Surround yourself with stories of how he's moved in other people's lives because that's what he's going to do in your life. We lean in to what he's doing. And we lean in to who he is through worship. See, when I, when I choose to worship him in the midst of my life feeling like chaos, one, there's, the, the incredible thing is that there is a fragrance to that offering of worship that I'll never be able to offer in eternity. Because there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more suffering. And so when I'm going through a trial and I choose to worship Jesus, I get to offer him something that I can never offer him again. Isn't that incredible? Also, it puts him as the focus. 
So often when we're going through something that's hard, the focus is on the situation, the focus is on the people that hurt us, the focus is on the offense. But when we choose to worship, we shift our focus from what's happening here to who he is. And we start declaring that over this situation until this situation looks like who he is. So if you want to see the glory of God increase on your life, I want to challenge you to lean in. Lean into what he's doing, into what he's done, into who he is, and to what he said. And as we do that, Instead of our trials being a place where the enemy gets the glory, they become a place where God gets the glory. The glory of the gold is displayed through the refining. Every fire, every trial, every persecution that the enemy tried to use to destroy you, God wants to do something beautiful with. And we can stand on these three things as we close. God is good. He isn't, sorry, our lives are meant to be saturated in his glory. He isn't mysterious, distant, far away, hard to know. Because Jesus came to reveal the exact nature of the Father. And every question, every problem, we can lean in and he'll bring something beautiful out of it. So I want to close by reading you this verse. James chapter 1 says, My fellow believers, when it seems as though you're facing nothing but difficulties, see it as an invaluable opportunity to experience the greatest joy that you can. For you knew, for you know that when your faith is tested, it stirs up power within you to endure all things. And then as your endur- endurance grows even stronger, It will release perfection into every part of your being until there is nothing missing and nothing lacking. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you bring beautiful things. Out of what feels like fire. We thank you that we can trust your goodness. No matter what's going on around us. And we thank you that you're faithful to do what you said you will do. Amen. We'll have prayer team.